What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast. Whether you're listening or watching, today's episode is with Rick Newman, who is a columnist at Yahoo Finance. And he's been a journalist for for many years. He covered the Pentagon, which we talk about in this episode. We talk about such things as finance, stock market. I tell him my story of how I could have $250 million right now if I would have just taken the Bitcoin when I had the chance, but you're gonna have to find out what I'm talking about in the episode. Please like this video, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already, and hit that bell notification so you get notified every single time I post new content, which a new episode posts every Friday on Spotify, iTunes, Google, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. So enjoy this episode of the E4 Explicit Podcast with Rick Newman, a Yahoo columnist and a journalist. I'll see you next Friday, peace out. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of uh, E4 Explosive Podcast. This is Corey, and today we have a special guest, Rick Newman, who is a, co- a column, column, columnist. I can never say it. I always want to say communist. Columnist, columnist yeah. at Yahoo Finance. Um, but, I had to learn how to say that. Right? <laughs> well, columnist. introduce yourself a little bit uh, and, and let the people know uh, for watchers and listeners who you are. Sure. I've been a journalist my whole career. Uh, I started out in Washington, D.C. with a news magazine people may have heard of, U.S. News and World Report, now known mainly for college rankings and hospital rankings, but it used to be one of the uh, three major news weeklies along with Time and Newsweek. Anyway, uh, I started there at a, a good time for magazines, uh, and I was lucky because I got to learn how to do real journalism from uh, real journalists who worked there, including some uh, investigative reporters who taught me a lot. I became the Pentagon reporter there in uh, 1995, I think, and I uh, left that job in 1991 because I moved from D.C. up to New York following a divorce and a custody lawsuit that I lost. So uh, my ex-wife was allowed to move from D.C. to New York with our two kids. So I kind of chased my kids and uh, ended up moving to New York, where I I still am, uh, two months before 9-11. So the defense beat and the Pentagon beat was, uh, I mean, it was a good beat at the time, but there wasn't that much happening. The big events in the 1990s, uh, the big one was the Persian, the first Persian Gulf War, the first Iraq War, uh, which was before my time. Um, I got to the magazine a little bit after that. There goes my phone. I'll turn that off. Uh, but then we had uh, the peacekeeping missions in Bosnia and Kosovo uh, and stuff going on, uh, sort of lower level stuff all around the world. Of course, after 9-11, uh, we had wars all around the world, and uh, I was gone from the beat by then, but we did have other people who came in behind me, and what I did after 9-11 was uh, go down to kind of cover the Pentagon, the building, the people, the generals, uh, and um, you know the sources that I had developed over those prior years while we sent other people, uh, younger guys who didn't have kids, honestly, uh, over to the war in Afghanistan first, and then uh, the war in Iraq after that. So I kind of shuttled down to D.C. from New York to cover the Pentagon, which uh, just became uh, kind of exhausting and impractical. So I became a business uh, reporter probably by 2003, 2004, did that for U.S. News and World Report for a while. That magazine was, um, you know, kind of going through the rough transformation into the uh, world of digital news at the time. So it was rough. I have a lot of friends who got laid off and lost their jobs. Uh, and uh, eventually I ended up over at Yahoo Finance, which is where I am today. Uh, I love working in online journalism. Uh, we're not committed. We don't have a TV network we have to support. We don't have a print publication we have to support. We're just digital. Uh, so that is a good business model. 
And that's where I am today. I'm covering uh, business and economics and a lot of things related to politics. So there's a lot of crossover between financial markets and politics. So I covered the uh, 2020 election. I covered Trump's economic policies, trade and stuff like that, the tariffs. And I'm doing the same with Biden, uh, all the bills he wants to pass, some of the bills he's already passed. Are, are we, uh, is the nation going to go bankrupt with the $29 trillion national debt and stuff like that? So I have fun, Corey. Wow, that's a that's a rap sheet, man. All right, great. So we talked actually before we started about kind of where I discovered you, and it was on the same documentary I discovered Kathleen Puckett, the FBI agent who found the Unabomber, and it was about the Pentagon. And it was this fascinating episode about you know, what goes on at the Pentagon, what are some secrets and stuff like that. Of course, Netflix has got to build that up and, and make it even more interesting than maybe what it really is. Um, so let's talk about your time at the Pentagon and maybe that write-up or kind of what you did uh, specifically at the Pentagon. Yeah, uh, I, the reason that you saw me on that documentary is because I co-authored a book with, a, with another guy named Patrick Creed called uh, Firefight, Inside the Battle to Save the Pentagon on 9-11. So uh, my co-author, Patrick, actually got the idea for this book. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting because I had been the Pentagon correspondent for my magazine right before leading up to 9-11. And I was actually uh, at the Pentagon on 9-11. I was in New York on that day, but uh, my bosses at the magazine, uh, you know, I thought I'd be covering what was going on in New York, but they said, we actually need you down here. You need to work, go start working the Pentagon. So nobody could get in the Pentagon on 9-11 um, who wasn't already in there. And of course, they evacuated it. But I was, you know, with all the other journalists standing at the, they set up a media center at a gas station overlooking the Pentagon right on the side of the building that got hit by the airplane. Uh, so I saw the Twin Towers burning on 9-11 and I saw the Pentagon burning on 9-11. <laughs> I, I mean, weird claim to fame, but uh, not too many people who were in, who were in both places on that right. day. Right. Um, so uh, Patrick knew, uh, he was a volunteer firefighter, uh, and he knew a lot of guys who were in the Arlington County, in the Alexandria County. I may be getting some of these details wrong because it's been a long time since we did this book, so I'll beg forgiveness if I make mistakes, but... He knew a lot of the firefighters who had actually been in the building uh, responding to the fire because the wow. Pentagon does not have its own fire brigade. It relies on uh, local fire jurisdictions. Um, so Pat was hearing all these stories from the firefighters who were in the building, uh, not just on that day. They were in that building for weeks because, I mean, that was an ongoing disaster, just as it was at the uh, site of the Twin Towers. It was very different, obviously, much uh, lower death toll. But so Patrick was hearing these stories about the firefighters and he wanted to write a book about it, but he wasn't a writer. So he found his way to me and we put this book together, kind of focusing on the story of the firefighters and the other first responders, which was a lot of the FBI, uh, which ended up being in charge of it uh, as a crime scene, mm -hmm. uh, which it was uh, local police to a lesser extent, but mostly just what it took to uh, basically get that uh, the fire put out and save the building. So that's what our book was about. Um, and that's how, how you came to uh, see me on, on that show because the Pentagon is an intriguing place. Hey. And um, the, that, that, a lot of uh, top, super top secret, I mean, there, there are levels of um, uh, uh, classification above top secret uh, that were right in the path of that um, aircraft and were destroyed and completely blown open. I think the, uh, if I remember correctly, the Navy's intelligence operation was right in the pathway of that plane. Uh, and there was literally, 
top secret documents floating on the air uh, and just blowing through the hallways as firefighters were in there trying to put the fire out. Oh my God. Did you have to have top secret to work there? No, the journalists don't, you don't get, uh, don't get security clearances. Um, what will happen sometimes is um, if you are, uh, if you are, Covering an operation, um, you know, let's say a, a field operation, mm -hmm. um, you when you this is when you uh, embed is the word, you know, you embed with a unit. So if you are it, with a unit, and this is, has been true as long as journalists have been have been covering wars, um, including World War One, including World War Two. I mean, if you're with a unit, you are going to have access uh, to at least what is secret information about future operations. Right. Um, and you just you just make an agreement. It's usually it's an explicit agreement that you will not write anything or publish anything about um, you can't. I mean, you know, any, you, you will not publish any classified information as an embed uh, because it could give the the uh, enemy information they, they could use uh, in an operation against you. So um, journalists are exposed to classified information. Sometimes uh, people leak. Uh, classified right. information and uh, that happens, but there's not normally any procedure for journalists having uh, having uh, security clearances, except in uh, unusual situations such as live operations. That's so crazy. I didn't know that. I figured that journalists had to have some sort of nope. clearance to be with that. There's kind Absolutely of more not. Like a in fact, uh, the Pentagon, it's usually just a giant ongoing battle where they're trying to keep secrets and we're trying to get the secrets. Wow. So speaking of secrets, um, I don't know if you saw, you probably did, but um, the families of 9-11 are trying to get, and I think Biden is actually going to release a lot of yep. uh, confidential um, uh, stuff about 9-11. I mean, is it going to be like this whole alien thing where they're like, oh yeah, we're going to release alien stuff. It's really not even significant. <laughs> UFO stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, like... so. The um, this is, we're we're going a little beyond my area of expertise. I know. Here's here's what I know about it. Um, there are legitimate questions about the role of the Saudi Arabian government and of people who might have been linked to the Saudi government and um, the uh, the uh, hijackers on 9/11 and the people who carried out the attack. Um, there there have been some indications that the Saudi government may have known about the planning for the attack. Um, there have been, I, I'm sure there have been some claims that it went beyond that because people will make any claim these days. Of course. Um, but the the FBI, whatever the FBI knows about this has been, it has kept it secret until now. And Biden has said he's going to release that information. So what is it, I have no idea what that information right, yeah. might show. And I mean, you know how these things go. Um, just because you release information does not all does not often settle the issue these days because people won't believe the information. People will think some of it's made up. They won't. They'll think there's other information the government hasn't released. Um, so we'll we'll see. Um, I my guess is that this is going to be inconclusive, right? Because if if there was some bombshell secret about a direct link to the Saudi government and 9/11. Um, I don't think the way to publish that information would be to just open these raw files. I think uh, that, uh, you know, if the FBI knows if the if there is information that has that kind of suggestion. And I think 
if there is that kind of information, the way to the way to release it would be to do it in some sort of um, controlled or organized way, rather than just open up these files right. and let people make what they will of them. So my guess is there's no smoking gun in there that says, "Aha, the Saudis knew about the 9/11 attacks in advance, or they even abetted the attacks." But we'll see what the information shows. Right. Yeah. I figured I'd just ask because it's kind of like perfect information. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. It's just, of course, it's the 20th anniversary, and it is um, a it is a legitimate question. I mean, yeah. the Saudis. Um, you know, they are our allies yep, because yep. of oil in the Middle East, but they are not such a friendly government either. No. Um, and they they play all sides in geopolitics. So, um, you know, it, it'll it'll be worth finding out what the FBI knows. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very interested in that. Yeah. The Saudis, I think there was that reporter. Remember the Saudi prince did something to a reporter. But anyway, I don't want oh, to. Oh, they murdered Jamal Khashoggi. Exactly. Uh, yeah. That yeah. was. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the he's basically the de facto ruler yeah. of uh, Saudi Arabia. He had this um, Saudi journalist who lived and worked in the United States murdered in Turkey. Um, that's it's very clear that the guy who runs Saudi Arabia ordered this murder operation, and they uh, carved up his body and uh, yeah. uh, put it someplace where nobody nobody's been able to find. Uh, the Turkish government had the goods on that. They had, um, they, they were doing, um, uh, they, 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 they just had all the intelligence and they, they, for whatever reason, the Turks leaked that information right away. And it seems to have been uh, completely, uh, you know, clear that this came from the top of the Saudi government. So they murdered a journalist. Right. Um, that, that's, that, that is, that is the nature of the Saudi government. Right, exactly. That's why when I thought I thought about it, I was like, "Wow, the Saudis like they're they're sketchy. Like they're our allies. They're but, sketchy." Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Let's talk about some finance stuff because I legit have some questions. <laughs> and with everything that's happened in the stock market the last six to eight months, I mean, I, I myself have never been into stocks in my life. And then as soon Bad. as yeah, huh? you, How missed, was that? you missed out. No, no, I, I know. It's so funny because uh, when GameStop happened too, that whole stuff, the whole short, I guess it was a short sale, whatever happened. I was like, oh yeah, let me get on this. I bought it in GameStop and it was like $350 because I'm like, oh, it's going to go to the moon. And of course it didn't. Uh, so, so then, you know, but then I got some other good stocks that yeah. I, I started doing some research and I got the Motley, whatever the Motley fool. Motley. And yeah, yeah. Like I really started diving in and, and learning a lot. And it was fascinating all the stuff that, that goes on with that kind of stuff. So can you kind of like explain maybe the stock market and how that works? You know, cause it's, it's very volatile most times, right? Which part of the stock market? Um, thing? uh, oh, I don't know. Is I didn't know there was multiple parts. Uh, well, I mean, there are uh, this. I mean, people get PhDs in this um, wow. to, to understand, to understand, you know, P, you know, f degrees in finance, which I don't have. I have I have a bachelor's degree in economics, so I don't consider myself an expert on the stock market. But I but I interview people and follow follow people who are experts. Um, I, I guess a couple of observations. Um, uh, st the stock market. So the S and P 500, uh, which is an index, uh, it's it's an index of 500 stocks, literally, that you can use as a just use that as representative of the stock market overall. And the Dow Jones is the same thing, but the mm -hmm. Dow Jones only has 30 stocks. Um, so the S and P 500 is what uh, you know professionals look at, just because it's a broader uh, basket of stocks. Right. I think the S and P 500 has hit. I saw this in an, in an analysis recently, 55 new record highs this year. 
Um, I don't know. I could, I could quickly look it up on my Yahoo Finance. Let me see how, if I can do this while I'm uh, This while is I'm 2021? Talking. Yep. Oh, my God. Um, so let me, let me uh, let's see. So anybody who wants to do this, you go to finance.yahoo.com. You click on S&P 500 at the top. I'm going to do year to date. So year to date, the S&P 500 is up 21%. So if you had $100 in the uh, S&P 500 at the beginning of the year, you now have $121. Oh, wow. Um, that is a fantastic return. Right. Over two, over two years, excuse me, over just one year. So before I was telling you year to date since January, over the last 12 months, it's up 31%. And over the last two years, it's up 52%. Whoa, so, isn't, isn't the average like three to eight or something like that or yeah, under 10%? Yes. <laughs> so that, that's a phenomenal level of return. Right. And I'm going to guess that it's even higher for the NASDAQ, which is an index of, of mostly technology stocks. Um, so the stock market has been producing phenomenal returns. And people who just, if you just invest in the S&P 500, and you can do that through a mutual fund or an ETF many, many ways, you're making good money. Right. Um, and you're right. The av average returns in the stock market on an annual basis, I don't know what the number is, but I think it's about seven or 8%. Um, right. And that includes good years and bad years. I mean, there are years when people lose a lot of money in the stock market, but it's been a fantastic year for stocks. And the reason it's been a fantastic year for stocks is the Federal Reserve. Um, the Federal Reserve, uh, because of what, is, what it's doing, the types of monetary stimulus that it's doing, um, it is just leaving no alternative for people who want to invest money except for stocks. And the short explanation for this, I mean, this is extremely technical, but what the federal, what the Fed has done is they have forced down um, interest rates at every time duration. So they, uh, the Fed can easily lower short-term interest rates because it basically sets short-term interest rates directly. But the Fed has also... Uh, brought down long-term interest rates. So that's uh, interest rates on anything going from 10 years to 30 years. And importantly, that means mortgage rates, uh, which uh, go along with that. And you just can't make money investing in um, things that pay uh, what, uh, you know, like treasury securities or anything else that's uh, benchmarked to treasury securities, right. so bonds. So you cannot make money in bonds right now because you're getting you're getting uh, on a 10-year treasury, you're getting like 1.3% interest and inflation is 5.4%. So right. you're losing money uh, if you invest in, if, you're if you think you're keeping your money safe in treasury securities, you're not. You're actually losing money rel relative to inflation. The Fed knows that. Um, the Fed is doing this on purpose because this, uh, the Fed can't do everything uh, to manipulate the economy. It can only do a few things, but the few things the Fed can do are very powerful. And uh, the net effect has been super low interest rates ever since uh, the coronavirus pandemic caused a recession starting in March of uh, 2020. Um, super low interest rates and no alternative to stocks if you're an investor, which is one of the big reasons that stocks are up as much as they have been. Right. That can't go on forever. But it can go on a pretty long time, and um, it will probably keep going on for a little while longer yet. Really? Yeah, because that's what I was thinking. I was I talked to a couple uh, economists and stuff like that that are professors and stuff, and we always talk about the inflation. We always talk about this is great now, but it can't go on, you know, forever. So I, I and when I look at like all these like you know 
analytics and like stocks and stuff it shows like the where we are where we were in like 2007 and 8 before it like the bubble popped or whatever right. and it's like we're even higher than we were then and still nothing has happened so i mean do you think that it's gonna like you just said it's gonna happen but when nobody knows <laughs> uh, i mean this is this is what wall street does every minute of every trading day wow. and, and we we have we have people on yahoo finance all the time everybody you know some there are some things they broadly agree on um, so, for example, one thing there's a there's a famous saying: "Don't fight the Fed." If the Fed is trying to achieve uh, monetary, it, it, you know, some goal through monetary stimulus, and it's trying to bring the economy back from a shock, get on board, ride that wave, and that's right. what's been going on. That has that is exactly what's been going on since March of 2020. Um, the you know a couple of things to think about. So when what when you, when I if I were to, if I say this can't go on forever. Well, here's, here's what does go on forever. I mean, the stock market always rises over time. It always rises over time. Um, that includes all the, all the downturns. And that, that's just because the economy grows, population grows, and corporate profits grow. Right. So that means um, stock market returns, as a, which are basically a measure of corporate profitability, will always go up over time as long as you have a growing economy, and as long as you have a growing population, population growth is actually really important. People get this wrong, but it's really important to a to a healthy economy. But in the middle, you know, that's the long term. In the middle term, and in the short term, of course, stocks can go down. They have gone down, um, and that is that has to happen again. And it, when stocks do go down by, you know, whether it's five percent, ten percent, would be a correction. Uh, 20% is is considered a bear market. That won't necessarily be bad. Um, people will lose money, but people have made a lot of money, uh, you know, during the last, what are we talking here, uh, eight, uh, 17, 18 months. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's a reset and that reset is sometimes necessary to take the froth off, off the top um, and to get valuations down to more realistic levels. So, it will happen. I mean, you know, the smart money normally has some um, cash on the sidelines so that uh, when when um, stocks do go down or whatever asset you're paying attention to when that goes down and you feel no one ever knows when you're at the bottom in right. real time. But when you feel like it crosses a threshold that becomes a buying opportunity, you buy some, it goes down more, you buy a little more and so on. Um, you know, so that that is how the professional investors are thinking about it. But I, I think it's fair to say that this rally we've had uh, since the pandemic um, first exploded in 2020 has surprised just about everybody. Right. No, I totally agree. And you know, what's funny that what you just said is kind of like an interesting, interesting mindset. So if you don't know, like you said, the professionals look at it like that. Me as someone who because I, I, you probably know this better than I do. There's it seems like there's been thousands of people that are now into stocks because of everything with GameStop and Reddit yep. and all this stuff that's happened. So the typical mindset is like, oh, I just spent a hundred bucks and now it's tanking. The professional will look at that is like, this is a great opportunity to put another hundred bucks into it and more money. But the average Joe is like, screw that. Like, yeah. I don't want to waste any more money. But you made a good point is it's more, that's an even better investment opportunity. Well, what the professional investors say all the time. And I, I want to emphasize, I'm not qualified to be an investment advisor. Um, I, uh, you know, I don't have the training, I don't have the uh, qualification, right. the certification or the degree, 
but I know, but I, you know, we interview these people all the time and exactly. you know, this is what we do at Yahoo Finance. Uh, they say, you know, to be a good investor, you have to take the emotion out of it. Um, don't get upset if a trade doesn't go the way you want it to go. Uh, and, what, you know, just understand what's happening in the market and then understand how to react to it. Um, nonetheless, um, people, uh, including people with a lot of money, I mean, um, get emotional about, their, about, about things when they lose money. Uh, some people get angry. <laughs> some people, uh, they, they want to blame somebody. They call, they want to, they, they want a hedge to roll. They call their investment advisor. How could you let this happen? Um, and uh, you know, we know from downturns when we're in, interviewing uh, money managers, one of the toughest things money managers have to do when stocks are down 10% or God forbid they're down 20% is tell their clients, just hold, just sit tight, just don't sell, you know, um, that, that that's not always the right move, but you know if 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 something goes down and you sell, well you're selling uh, low. Right. I mean, that, you don't make money by buying high and selling low. You make money by buying low and selling high. Right. But that's a lot harder than it sounds because to to sell high you have to hold on when right. things don't look good. On the other hand, there are cases when um, something is is just a real bomb. And, uh, you know, there's no better example than, uh, of that than what happened during the financial crash in 2008. I mean, nobody imagined that a uh, trading house as prominent as Lehman Brothers would go, would go bust. Right. And, uh, and they did. Um, and uh, a, a lot of other ones would have gone bust, too, if not for the, the bailouts that Americans really hated. But those bailouts did save the financial system and they saved a lot of people a lot of money. Right. Um, so... Um, you know, for ordinary investors, here's here's the way I think about it. And this is kind of what I've learned to do. And I wish I had learned this 20 years sooner, but better late than never, I guess. Right. First of all, you know, whatever you have, your 401k or any money you can put in even a small amount of money in, a, in an investing account is can be invaluable because you're going to learn if you uh, if you um, invest in a few things and then just watch what happens to them over time, you're going to learn a lot. So. Um, I think the, the smartest money money managers say it doesn't pay to be a day trader. Um, you, you know, every, people think they can outguess the market. They can't. You pay transaction costs that lower your returns. The thing to do is to buy index funds. Just bet on the market as a whole. You can you can you can vary that. There are index funds um, and ETFs. I per, I personally uh, buy ETFs now, not mutual funds. But you can you can invest in different sectors. Um, there are, I, th I think, literally thousands of ETFs, uh, which are which are just baskets of stocks organized in in all different ways. There's value, uh, there's financial. Pick an industry. If you like telecom, there's a telecom ETF. Uh, several actually. So you can um, mix it up that way. Mostly buy funds and stick with them. And then if you want to trade a few stocks to learn what it's like to trade stocks, uh, do that. But uh, to my mind, more than a few, um, you you really better know what you're doing, or just be willing to lose money, um, because because it's hard to make um, it's it's hard to beat uh, the market by trading individual stocks, and you all you, you're going to have more transaction fees, even if you think trading is free. Um, you know, sometimes uh, the price you're getting includes uh, fees for, you know, somewhere along the way. So um, nothing's, nothing's really free. And, um, you know, that's just something else you have to keep in mind. And the la last thing is opportunity cost. If you've got your money 
uh, if you're trading stocks and you got your money in that, well, you don't have your money in something else uh, that could just be a nice, stable investment that gives you returns over time. Right. That's listen, what you're saying is literally blowing my mind because this is exactly like what you just described is exactly what I did. And what I know a lot of people do that are coming in that are new, they're thinking, especially when they see the Reddit stuff and the game stuff, they're like, oh, I mean, I've seen people posting stuff all the time where they've made like a hundred thousand dollars where they've made millions of dollars in a couple of days because of these things. And everyone else is like, oh, well, that's Roaring Kitty. Roaring Kitty is the uh, poster child for this, right? Yeah. I mean, he became a millionaire or a multimillionaire, yep. and now he's like giving investing advice. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, it's like exactly, but it's like that's like a complete anomaly of yep. of someone following something. And I literally was on for like weeks. I was on this, the same Reddit. I forget what the the Reddit uh, thread was called. Um, Wall Street bets. Wall Street bets. Yeah, and it was like. I was like, oh, everyone in the comments was like, oh, this is going to go to the moon. This is, And then I'm looking at the stock. I'm like, oh, it's only like 70 cents. It's a th- like, let me get this. And then like you just said, it's like, that's basically day trading. And then having like 20, 30 stocks in your portfolio that are like never even heard of, aren't really in these EFTs and stuff like that, that which makes total sense now that I'm actually talking to someone who knows about finance. Well, have you made any money doing that? I have actually. Uh, but not a lot. Like th- my mindset you was estimate. Like- so remember, I just said the uh, so one the one year return again. I'm yes. looking at it. The one year return on the S and P 500 is 31. percent Do you feel like you've made more than 31 percent over the last year? No, I would say so I was again, more than like, average. What do you think you've made? 10 percent? Probably like 10, 11 percent. Yep. Okay, so you're you're behind. If right. you had just parked that money right. in an S and P 500 uh, exchange traded fund or ETF, you, you'd you'd have more money. Right. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. Now I'm thinking like, all right, I need boring. It is boring. boring. I know. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. But then, you know, then say to yourself, well, I'm willing to accept a lower return because I'm entertaining myself. It's a cost of entertainment. I'd rather entertain myself, uh, you know, going to a football game or something, but uh, cheaper. cheaper. Football isn't cheap. I know, I know. That's, that's so true, man, because that's really what it is. I think it's like, it's also like the, the, the get rich quick mindset too of like, oh man, it, it could blow up. It could, if Elon just puts a, uh, another tweet out real quick, then this, this, uh, was this, this do- Dogecoin, Dogecoin. Which is, yeah, will blow up or whatever. So I'm going to, I'm going to, um, so I bought a meme stock. I, I had, I did not participate in the, uh, meme stock. I'm looking this up on my phone here. Yeah. Uh, I, I did not participate in the meme stock uh, frenzy and, you know, there. If as a journalist who covers this stuff, I have to be prepared to uh, disclose any any stock I own, and I right. should not own any stock that's in um, that's in something I cover on a regular basis. Yeah. But I thought, let me just buy one of these and see what happens. So somewhere along the way, BlackBerry was um, was one of the meme stocks. That was supposed to go. It was supposed. It was going to take off any day now, right? And I looked at it to make sure it hadn't already. It hadn't already risen by four hundred percent, and I was mm-hmm. buying late. It hadn't. So this was about four months ago. I bought a small amount of BlackBerry, you know, just to, just because once you own something, you're going to follow it and find out what happens. Uh, so far, I've lost six hundred dollars. Oh wow. Um, my total return is uh, terrible. <laughs> So BlackBerry hasn't gone anywhere, and I'm glad I'm glad I put only a very small amount of money into it just as a test to see what happens. 
And I thought maybe I'll get a story out of it. And I think the story is um, meme stock investing failed me. Personally. Yes, that's not smart. And I'm not, that's... you know, I'm not embarrassed to say it because I also did not put a lot of money in. But right. But there are a lot of people that do that put in I know. lots I know. of money on these things that they hope explode because of some Reddit or of a tweet yeah. from someone. Yep. Oh, my God. You said uh, terrible. <laughs> that was funny. Terrible. <laughs> Let's talk about crypto for a second. Sure. Is that um, okay? Tell you a little little story. This is kind of this is crazy. This, this really makes me angry. So in, in twenty, I think it's like eleven or twelve. A friend of mine, David Fuchs, he's a filmmaker and a really really popular artist. He's making a documentary called Bit by Bit about Bitcoin, mm-hmm. and uh, he was coming to DC. So we filmed some uh, legislators and some politicians, some really high level people, um, and he's like. I think the, yeah, the, my, my chart, my feet was like five grand for like three days of shooting. And he's like, listen, I can give you, I pay you on Bitcoin. And I'm like, this is, we were interviewing people. So I've never heard of it until I was interviewing these people. And he's like, he's like, I'll pay you a Bitcoin. I'm like, no, man, give me, I want, give me my cash money. I want my $5,000. And he, I'm he looking is up now. Bitcoin. I'm going to, I'm going to, cal- I'm going to, as you're telling this story, <laughs> I'm going to calculate how much money you made. So when was this? This was in 2011. 2011, oh 2012. Yeah. I mean, it was like pennies to the dollar. And I was like, I don't want $5,000 worth of Bitcoin. And so he paid me in 5,000. And he, keep in mind, is a millionaire now living in a beach in a, a beach house in Miami, like with a G-Wagon. Yeah, five th- somebody's going to try to think $5,000 in Bitcoin in 2011 <laughs> would have been... It was like, would have been like I mean, you would be, you'd be retired. I know. I listen, right. Yeah, that would have been uh five. That could have been, it was like a buck. I know it was like nothing. Would have given you 5,000 Bitcoin, which is now worth $50,000. Okay. <laughs> Millions. Yeah. Millions. I, literally. And then I shoot myself in the foot. So he's in. I'm just going to calculate how much you've lost here as you're talking. About. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Got a calculator right next to you. So 5,000 Bitcoin. Mm-hmm times and i always put in the real numbers uh that would be i'm sorry okay Corey, you you would have 250 million dollars 250 million i'm assuming a bitcoin price of around one dollar back then it yeah it was like three dollars no, it, it was nothing it's like it basically like you just would be at least out. an eight digit millionaire oh, eight figure millionaire jesus what'd you do with that five thousand dollars i paid rent or something like <laughs> live my well, life you could have bought the whole complex I li- all right I'll, oh, stop, I'll stop rubbing it in dude and then listen and so i'm it's, he's a good friend of mine so like uh he he hits me up i think it was like two, it was two years ago and he's like hey man i got some we're doing bit by bit two come and film and this is when bitcoin was ten thousand dollars yeah and he's like listen because uh, i only came down for the day to shoot and he's like it's a, it was a thousand bucks because I, I hooked him up and he's like, listen, I'll give you a thousand bucks in Bitcoin. And I'm like, definitely not. Cause now it's 10 grand. You're giving me basically like one tenth of it. And then sure as shit, six months later, 50 grand. And I'm like, can I get, like, next time you offer me a Bitcoin, I'm taking it. Cause yeah, it's, you should. Yeah. Like it, it's so funny that, and I talked to him this morning cause he's going to come on the podcast, but it's like, it's, it kills me every time when I tell people this story. Cause I'm like literally millions of dollars we had if i remember right we had a guest on yahoo finance who thinks bitcoin is going to go to seven hundred thousand dollars oh my god now that doesn't mean it will right bitcoin could also go to zero right it could also go to zero which anybody who buys bitcoin needs to remember right um i have no idea i i find seven hundred thousand hard to believe but yeah 
No, I, I, that, that's my thought. I'm like, I'm like, especially when I'm interviewing these people, I'm like, these people sound like Looney Tunes when mm-hmm. I'm interviewing them back in 2011. And of course, they weren't wrong. <laughs> so, but nope. anyway, I just thought that was a funny story and talking to someone in finance can kind of understand. Well, I'm glad you have a sense of humor about it. Oh yeah, no, I mean, what am I going to do? I mean, I probably went to dinner. So let's go get some dinner, you know, it's five yeah. grand. Yeah, that yeah. sucks. Um, all right, so let's back up real quick. I want to talk about this, uh, the GameStop and stuff like that. You know, do, I, do you put some, you don't put much stock into that kind of stuff, right? I hope, I would, I would assume not. Well, so the um, conventional Wall Streeters are, they just cannot stand what has happened with these meme stocks um, because it just drives them completely bananas that there is no fundamental reason these stocks should have gone up. And, you know, the fundamental reason being um, that it's just the company's profitability. I mean, um, uh, there's just, you know, so when you do valuation metrics, and again, I'm not an expert in this, but valuation is you just take a company's, you know, you'd look at all their financial data, cash flow, uh, expected future cash flow and stuff like that. And that's how the market determines, uh, well, that's how on paper you would determine uh, the value of right. a stock. And then of course, the market just determines the value based on who buys it and who sells it. Right. Um, they have said that with regard to all these companies, AMC, GameStop, um, I, I forget what, what some of the other ones were. Blackberry was supposed to be one, but it, but it wasn't. So I guessed wrong there. Nokia. Um, they, yeah. Okay. Um, there's just no reason these stocks should have gone up 400% or whatever they went up. Right. However, there is another factor, which is supply and demand. Um, um, so if demand for a scarce asset goes up, but there's no increased supply in the asset, then the price goes up. Um, and and that is that is also a fundamental of markets is that when more people want to buy something, if it's a fixed supply, the price is just going to go up. I mean, that's just simple economics. And that is what happened with um, with these stocks. So because there was this buying frenzy, it created a new demand and that pushed the price up. Now, it shouldn't have by. So what, what the what the market experts can't. I mean, there really is no explanation uh, there's no link between any change in the in the fu- financial fundamentals of these companies um, and the increase in demand. The increase in demand just came because a bunch of people said buy it. I mean, it was a it was a it was just like a full on craze, like the right. tulip craze in yeah. the 1600s. Um, so if that's what happened, um, then uh, we should have reversion to the mean, and we should go back to fundamental values at some some point, which means. That these these uh, stocks are going to tank at some point, and right. that's what these the market experts expect to happen. But they've also learned another important lesson. I mean, when you think the value of something is going to go down, you do short selling, which is you uh, do a series of trades and effectively bet um, against the stock, and you bet that it's going to decline in value rather than go up in value. But that is a time limited trade normally. Yeah. And a lot of people who have made a lot of money on short selling because they have guessed right about overvalued stocks and bet against them. And then they've come down. And when they come down, you make a lot of money. Um, that has not happened fast enough <laughs> for the short sellers to cash in. And so they've, they've mm-hmm. you know, run out of time basically, and they had to cash out their positions. So um, with these stocks, the um, you know short selling is actually a, an important market mechanism because it keeps stocks honest. Um, it's a way that the market can target things that are overvalued and keep valuations in check. That is that that is not working. 
with the meme stocks the way it normally does. Right. Um, that doesn't mean those stocks are going to stay up. I mean, I think it's highly likely that those stocks crater at some point, um, but they have already already stayed um, stayed up way longer than almost anybody thought they would, and for reasons nobody ever ever thought they would see. Right. So they stayed up too long for short sailors to make money off of them. Right, well. because yeah. that's a time to trade. Um, right. In many cases, I mean, it's it may not be technically timed, but um, you can't you don't make money if you just stay in that trade for, right. for years. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Those are not. And if you've stocks. got your money in that trade for years, that you're not using your money for uh, for other other investments either. Right. So. Right. Right. That, so that takes the that takes the value out of a short trade. Definitely. So I have a couple more questions, but um, as far as like finances and stuff that you typically cover, you interview a lot of people with stock market knowledge and stuff like that. But what kind of stuff do you typically cover that you could consider yourself more or less as an expert in? You know, I know you're a journalist, but like, as far as, is it like the economics of like the government? Is it economics of like, you know, people budgeting, stuff like that? I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't consider myself an expert in anything except I'm an expert in gathering information. I mean, that's, that's right. what journalists do. So uh, I mean, I have to report everything that, you know, everything that I write, I have to report it and talk to experts and, um, uh, and figure out what they think. And, you know, th everything changes. So right. you think, you know, something one day, but then it changes and you did, you didn't understand what just happened. So you have to go learn that. Um, I mean, I know a lot about, I know a lot about how the government works. I know a lot about um, <clears throat> the politics of getting things done. Um, I know how to read what goes on in Washington, though I have a lot of help. I mean, I have, you know, sources who are explaining to me, here's what's really going on in Congress. Um, here's, here's, who's, uh, who, here's how the one side is posturing. Here's how the other side is posturing. Here's how it's likely to come out in the end, somewhere in the middle. Here's what mm -hmm. the middle ground is going to look like. Um, I guess if I'm an expert on anything, it's being skeptical uh, of anything that people say publicly and always trying to figure out what's really going on. What do people really mean? But I mean, I've been covering, I'm covering, you know, Joe Biden's tax policies. Um, is he going to get the tax hikes that he wants? Um, all this social uh, safety net spending, is he going to get that? If he does get it, will it, will it be good for the economy? What about right. the environmental legislation? What, how would you prioritize these things? If, he, if Biden can only get half of what he wants, what's the right half? Um, what are the most important parts of it? You know, this is, I don't, I know how to look, I know how to look for this stuff and find the answers, but I don't always know the answers myself. I have to ask people who, who are smarter than me. Right. And yeah. That's, that's and that's, that's one thing I talked about. Um, like I said, the, the, uh, economists and stuff like Anthony Davies and James Harrigan, they, they, I talked to them quite a bit about like when, especially during COVID, it was the 2.9 trillion, even Trump, when, when he was president, it was like this, this amount of money is like. <laughs> That was going. And then when we started like peeling back the onion of like where it's going, right, was kind of like, wait, if it's $2.9 trillion, why can't every single person in the United States get X? Why are we sending $100 million to whatever studies in Israel or, you know yeah. what I mean? So do you have any like insight on like, how the hell are we going to A, pay this back? And yes. yeah. And why did we give this money to all these different things? Yeah, I mean that that's th those are two complicated questions, but I'll try I'll try to um, I'll try to give a concise answer. Um, so I covered the last recession, which was the one in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, mm -hmm. and one of the things smart people learned from the last recession is um, the government didn't do enough. 
Um, and you can argue what's, what is the right amount, what's too, what's, what's too much, what's not enough, and so on. But the way to measure, one useful way to measure whether the government did enough is how long the recovery took. Hmm. And the recovery after the 2008-2009 recession was very, very slow. This gets politicized and people say, oh, that's because Obama, blah, blah, blah. That, it, Trump did better, blah, blah, blah. The president normally has very little to do with the economy and everybody should just stop thinking like that. Yep. There are presidential policies do make a difference on the margins for sure. Um, but the, the economy does its own thing. And the idea that some, pre, you know, I mean, I have these arguments with people. If people think Obama did a great job and Trump did a terrible job or, or the other way around, in reality, if you look at the data, the economy just kept going mm -hmm. from Obama to Trump, and the, the trends barely changed from Obama to Trump. Right. And that just tells you the economy wasn't responding to either president. It was just doing whatever it did. But right. at any rate, so in, here's one measure. Um, how, many, how long did it take to get all the jobs, lost jobs back from, from the 2008 recession? It, I think it took like six years. Um, again, I, I, I could look this up in about a minute. So if I'm getting that wrong, excuse me. But it was around that time. That's too long. Um, we needed a faster recovery because people that whole time people are suffering right and income inequality is getting worse and the people on the margin are falling into a black hole they can't get out of um, people cannot build wealth which means that they're always living paycheck to paycheck we needed a faster recovery so um policymakers and economists learned that lesson and so the mat we saw we just had a massive amount of government stimulus during the coronavirus um, I think in round figures, Congress passed six times as much spending, stimulus wow. spending uh, in 2020 and 2021 as Congress passed in 20 uh, in 2009 and 2010. Right. And it worked. It actually worked. I mean, so you can have this bang for the buck argument, like how much, what's the right amount in order to get back, you know, of what's the right number of trillion dollars to spend to get to get six million jobs back you, right. you could do that math and i mean there is no single right number but we have had a an amazingly fast recovery um you know there are many factors in here this was a different type of recession but um this you know that stimulus did make a difference so is it too much i we will find out in the future but the idea is um the faster the government the faster the economy recovers the faster you get people to work, the more people you have working, the more people you have paying taxes, uh, and the more people people you have contributing to a growing economy. And we need we have to have a growing economy, and we have to have improving improving productivity to get out of this debt hole. So we now have a so the flip side of this is we had a big debt hole before, and it's now almost one third bigger. Right. So, uh, so I think that the total national debt is $29 trillion. No one even knows how much $29 trillion is. Um, we, it's, it sounds insurmountable, but it's not insurmountable. And a couple of reasons it's not insurmountable. First of all, we never have to pay back the whole national debt. Um, at some point we're going to have to pay it down. We're going to have to have, we're going to, it's, it's going to have to be smaller as a percentage of the overall economy. And one thing that will trigger a crisis here is when interest rates start to go up and the uh, interest payments on that debt start to get higher. That's going to be a big problem. Mm -hmm. oh, but there's a big solution, um, which is a value added tax. Um, 
every uh, advanced country in the world has a value added tax or a VAT as it's called, except the United States, we don't have one. And when the time comes that the United States has to raise a lot of money in a hurry, that is one way to do it. There are other ways to do it. You could, you could um, just raise the taxes that are already on the books, um, you know, and Biden wants to do some of that. But if you really need a lot of new money, you impose a value added tax, which you can think of as a national sales tax. It's not exactly, but you can think of it as a national sales tax. So, uh, you know, for a lot of stuff you buy and you would, you could exempt things like food necessities. Um, but for many things you buy, if you're buying a TV, um, there might, you might pay an extra $5 in, um, in value added tax. Right. And that will raise trillions of dollars if necessary. It might also cause a recession if we have to do that, but we'll get through the recession with a more stable budget on the other side. Right. Right. That makes total sense. And that's, that's just one. I mean, there are many, yeah, there's plenty many ways of, yeah. to fix the budget problem, but that's a, that's a straight, simple, straightforward one. I didn't know that you, that we didn't have to pay it all back. I, I didn't, I didn't, I never knew that. That's interesting. Uh, we just have to, we, we just have to make interest payments. Right. Wow. That's crazy. And you said you, what you said about um, the, the mindset of people thinking the president has something to do with everyday life. That's the one thing that I took away from when I talked to the other economists. They were like, if you think that any president, no matter who it is, has anything to do with your day-to-day -day life, you are mistaken. Uh, for the most part, that has nothing to do. That's not going to affect who's in office, who, really your day-to-day -day life on a, on a typical basis, which it's true. And I think people need to hear that because if people get so riled up about these things. Oh, that's going to take this away from me. It's like, is it really though? No, it's not. Yeah. So I had an, I, I, I have family in the South and we recently had a family get together and I love my family. We have, uh, we, um, we have a good time together. We get along great. Mostly we don't talk about politics, but my Same. uncle Mark, <laughs> wanted to talk to me, to me about critical race theory. And th this is not something that I, I don't cover critical race theory. I'm aware, I'm aware of the argument. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, and I said to him, I said, you know, his kids are grown. Uh, they're out of school. My kids are grown. They're out of school. And I said, Mark, why are you suddenly all riled up about critical race theory? How right. does this affect your life? And, right. and he looked at me kind of, you know, for a second, he said, well, I care about the direction of this country. I was like, I, I do too. That, that wasn't the question. My question was, you're all riled up about this. Let's, let's be honest, because your people on TV are telling you, you should be really angry yep. because something's happening in schools, blah, 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 and blah. And I said, I, I'm not defending it. I don't, I don't, whatever, you know, I, but whatever, I'm not, but I said, just tell me how this, how this affects your life. Right. And he gives me this, well, you know, it's the country. And I said, Mark, there are things like, have you ever been to like a planning session in your, in your city or a school board meeting? Like, if you really care, go to a school board meeting. Don't, don't just watch TV and get and throw, um, you know, throw peanuts at the TV. And, you know, my ending argument was you're getting really fired up like a lot of other people about something that has no effect on you whatsoever. Yep. When there are things that do affect you that you, you could actually be getting angry about to, to, to some good effect. Yep, that's so true. That's exactly what in my, in, they in told my me last too. book, Corey. I, I said, um, uh, and not enough people bought it, so it's not a bestseller. I'm sorry to say, but I I try to make the point that almost nobody lives in Washington D.C. Most of us live in a community where we have neighbors, we have churches, we have schools, we have parents, 
Um, yet we all watch TV and we all get outraged about what goes on in, in Washington, D.C., whether you're liberal or conservative. We're all pissed off about this. We don't live there. Yep. All those issues on cable TV are not the th- things that affect us in our homes. I mean, you know, we have we have potholes. We had, you know, I'm in New York where we just had flooding. Yep. What's this? What's the city going to do about um, flood control? Um, how do we get the water back in the river? Right. Keep it out of the basement, you know? Right. Um, what about people speeding through the neighborhood on Google Maps? I mean, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. Like, you live in your community. You don't live on cable news. Yep, that's 100% true. And that's exactly what that fr- it frustrates me, too, because it's, it, it's and that's what they said, too, the other people that I spoke to. They were like, the, the stuff that you can affect or, or have an effect on is go to your council meetings, be a part of those things in your local community, because they're making decisions that, that are going to come out of your pocket, you know, your income or your uh, property tax or all these things that, that do directly affect you. That's so true. And I I never thought of it like that because I always had the same mindset as everyone else. Like, and granted I live and lived in the area in Washington, but even living there, it was never like we had our own little neighborhood and it was like, Oh, like you said, we want to put speed bumps because people are speeding through our thing. We can't go to Biden and be like, Hey bro, can you put some speed bumps in our neighborhood? No, we have to go to the district five courts and all that stuff so having said all that i I, there is one thing worth pointing out is that biden and uh his fellow democrats in congress are contemplating some things that would actually be major changes that uh that would affect real people directly and they they have i mean so the um you know the stimulus checks mm-hmm. that that did affect real people directly um that was money that was money that went to people and when you said before why don't they just divvy up the 2.9 trillion dollars well to some extent they did right mm-hmm. everybody got checks um based on how many kids you had and some people got a lot of money right federal unemployment benefits um that was you know that was 300 a week 1200 a month um you can have a fair argument about whether that it creates an incentive for people not to go back to work yeah. um but that, that is money that went to people and it, it, without a doubt, it helped at least some people who, um, who, could, who can't find jobs. And I've right. interviewed them. Yep. Um, the other thing that Biden and the Democrats have done is this refundable child tax credit, which is a big deal. Um, people, are, people who qualify for this, and it's a lot of people, um, are getting, and I forget the amount of money, but they're getting, I think, $600 a month deposited straight into their... Um, their, their, their bank accounts for like every um, child, I think. Yeah, it's, it's right. It's a per child. It's a per child credit. So it yeah. depends on the age of your kids and how many kids you have. Um, uh, so it's a variable amount of money, but mm-hmm. that's a meaningful amount of money. Oh yeah. I mean, that, it, that is helping people make rent and make car payments so they can get to work. Yep. And uh, Biden wants to make that permanent. Um, so that is an example of something, you know, like I said, the president doesn't not, does, doesn't nor- normally have any much power to affect the whole economy, right, right. but they can certainly affect pockets of it. Um, and that's an example. By the way, the most important, important person in America is the chair of the Federal Reserve, not the president. Really? Uh, yeah. The chair of the Federal Reserve does have way more power over the direction of the economy than the president does. Interesting. I didn't know that. Absolutely. Well, I think we were talking about before. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's not one person who makes the decisions. It's a board. But uh, <clears throat> the, the Federal Reserve is the most important um, institution in the world of any kind. Right. Because it, it just has a massive um, responsibility for the U.S. economy. When you can control interest rates, I mean, the Federal Reserve has created, literally created 
many trillions of dollars of wealth during the last uh, 15 months through low interest rates. Oh, right. Just who, who, else, who else could right. do that? Who right. else could do that? That's true. Yeah. And that's directly affecting people. Yep. Yep. Wow. All right. Last, last thing I'll let you get out of here. Yep. Give me a top two or three finance tips you can give to people listening or watching that could help them, whether it's budgeting in their household or with stock, whatever it is, give me two or three kind of pro tips that you've learned. I, I think, I think my best tips are the ones are, are the conventional ones. Um, start saving money early. Even if no matter how little the amount, I, I, correction, start investing money early. Um, no matter how little the amount of money is, um, uh, start, you know, force yourself to put $50 a month, if you can do it, uh, into an investing account. Find some place uh, where you can, you can do that. Um, you know, you can open an investing account with a small amount of money or save the amount of money until you get started. My daughter, who is 24, um, she does this and I did not do it at her age and, um, she's going to be a multimillionaire and I'm never going to be a multimillionaire. <laughs> and one of the reasons is she, 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 she knows this, um, she's starting to save money, even if it's small amounts and invest it. Um, and I think people should invest most of their money in what the professionals tell you to do, which is, uh, just to put it in an S and P 500 ETF an exchange traded fund. You can buy um, a little bit of that at a time. If you want to buy more, you buy more. When the stock market goes down, don't take it out. Mm -hmm. Actually get in the habit of buying more when prices go down, if you can. And then I, I do think people should own a, a small, a very small number of stocks, uh, less than 10, let's say. And I think less than five would be fine too, um, just to watch them. Watch what happens to a stock. You'll understand a stock split better, for example, right. if you own a stock that splits. I'm, you know, in, um, you know, Apple, for example, has had stock splits. A lot of people will just buy a couple shares of Apple and see what happens. Well, if you bought 10 shares of Apple, I, if I remember right, they had a four for one split. So suddenly you had 40 shares of Apple. Oh, wow. And then you have to understand why does that happen? Um, and, um, yeah, that's how you learn. You you really just learn way more if you have a little bit of money invested, no matter how small. Right. If it's your money and something happens to your money, you're going to want to know why. And that's a great way to learn. And finally, cryptocurrency. I, I think it is, you know, you can buy, you don't have to buy one Bitcoin. You can buy, uh, Bitcoin gets divided all the way down to eight decimal points. Um and one, the smallest, I believe the smallest unit of a Bitcoin is called a Satoshi after the so-called founder, creator. Mm -hmm. creator. Um, I think it's worth having. I mean, I own a little bit of crypto and I've learned a lot of, more about crypto because I own some of it. Right. Um, same thing. When you own it, you're, you, you want to learn about it. So you don't have to put a lot, you don't have to gamble. You don't have, don't, you don't have to day trade, but just have a little bit of it. And that'll force you to learn the trends and, and follow what's going on. So when you're in it, you're going to learn it. Right. No. Yeah. When you got skin in the game, it's way more. And important. I'm not, I'm just not a fan of day trading. Yeah. Um, uh, I think, I think the odds are against you if you day trade, but um, people want to do it anyway. So, but call it, um, don't call it investing, call it entertaining yourself and understand that if you're a day trader, you're, you're probably paying a high cost of entertainment. That's exactly what it is, dude. It's, you could have said it more perfectly. So where can people find you on the Yahoo Finance, what books and stuff like that? Where can they find you? Yep. My 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 personal website is rickjnewman.com. I'd love people to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Rick J. Newman. 
and you'll you'll find my stories plaster all over Yahoo Finance, and you can find my uh, my webpage there and follow my stories if you want. That's finance.yahoo.com. Awesome, yeah, and all those things will be in the description below. And hey, cool. Rick, thank you so much for coming on. Good I really conversation, Corey. Yeah, man, thank you. And that's another episode thank, of the thank you for good questions. podcast. Yeah, man, absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, and we'll see you next time, guys. Bye.